Ship, your podcast vessel on our voyage through America's dumbest timeline. I'm Frank Spring, and with me, as always, here in person, uh, live and in person, is uh, Ellie Jacobs, a man who uh, is destined to be added to uh, the list of light, heat, and age among uh, the prime enemies of beer. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. Good to be with you in person for our second in-person Taking Ship episode. Uh, as always, we want to thank all of our many friends, family, Pretty much it. That's all that listens to us. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're not even sure that all the family does. No. Uh, we'd like to thank them all for their compliments and criticism um, and urge everyone to please follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in plaque. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on our new Facebook page where we post nothing but cat gifs. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the internet is for. That's what the internet is for. What was that old Seinfeld line? Porn quotes. You can watch porn. You can get stock quotes. Yeah, and Seinfeld stuff. goes, yeah, it's yeah. porn quotes. Porn quotes, yeah, sure. Yeah, that works. Um, since we're uh, live and in person today, we're doing this a little bit more gonzo than we usually do, um, which is saying something. <laughs> <laughs> now even less prepared. Yeah. <laughs> Buy Casper mattresses. <laughs> That's exactly right. Casper mattress when you'd rather sleep in than plan. Casper mattresses. <laughs> So, uh, because we don't want to uh, revisit the Charlottesville issue, uh, even though it's clearly something that people should be thinking about and talking about, and we don't want to talk about the monuments controversy, um, and we don't really want to talk about Trump's erratic behavior between the Monday, uh, very well-read for a 70-year-old with an Ivy League degree speech uh, about Afghanistan, and the Wednesday speech uh, to the uh, American Legion, again, a 70-year-old man, uh, clearly on some sort of Xanax cocktail reading a speech um, with very small words and compared to his erratic, threshent behavior Tuesday night at a manic rally um, in a half-filled auditorium in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, We're not going to talk about that either, um, but what we're really not going to talk about, uh, we're going to start... Actually, you know what? Those are the three things we're not going to talk about, and this week we're actually we're not going to talk about. Actually, not going to talk about not not because they're not important, but because most of we uh, we feel like we hit them uh, very hard, and particularly last week's episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, please do. Um, Niggas the Beggar really really sorts us out on a lot of that stuff. Um, so we are not going to repeat ourselves. We are not going to repeat what is out there. Um, those are all important stuff, but we are now going on to areas where we can really add some value. Yeah, and where we want to start is uh, Politico had an email that had a email. It was also part of their email because they just send lots of emails. They're basically a marketer at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I once said during the course of the campaign, I would just hate to feel like we couldn't we could have sent one more email. Yeah, could have just sent one more email. Would have one more email. Things would have been different. Yeah. Whoever the organizer was in Wisconsin that didn't send that one extra you email should have sent more emails. Yeah. You had one job, which was not to talk to anyone, which was damn sure not to do any kind of persuasion push over the summer. You were supposed to send more emails. Did you send more fucking emails? No, you did not. And we see what happened. Hope you're ashamed of yourselves. Taking ship lesson learned number six. Always send that extra email. Send the extra email. People love getting email. Love it. Makes them feel important. Exactly. Yeah. It's like an, it's like the you know nice old lady in your building that goes down to check the mail every day just to make sh- like it's yeah. like her reason for being. That's that's exactly right. That's that's it. that's how people are when they check their email inboxes. Voters yeah. love to be emailed. 
they love to be emailed. They also love to be sent uh, hard hard mail that comes in anxiety-producing and threatening forms. Uh, so, for example, if you are one of the... Uh, and, and the DNC got in a bunch of trouble for this this week. Uh, the RNC has also done this, um, but that does not excuse the DNC doing it. Uh, voters love... Potential donors love to get mail that says that, that it comes looking like a final notice that includes the word final notice on it. Uh, and the final notice, of course, is you're supposed to have given to the party and you haven't. Voters love that shit. Also, you know who else loves to get uh, mail like this? Uh, voters uh, getting mail, getting political mail during a campaign... Uh, that says if you vote for the that you notice of election violation in big red letters that looks like it's come from an official agency and says if you vote for uh, the, our opponent you will have committed a violation against democracy. Mitch McConnell did that against Alison Lundergan Grimes in 2015. No joke. One of the evilest things that I've I have seen a candidate do within the broader context of right. normal of normal political practice. So yeah, voters love emails. Voters also love to get threatening mail. Yeah, and we bring up the little old lady because they are also the people who are going to go vote. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Speaking of strange pieces of mail, uh, an old friend of mine um, working on an anti-gun initiative, uh, I think, uh, in, in, in Ohio, put together some piece of mail about uh, LeBron James was on it and it was blaming Florida for like the influx of guns. Like LeBron went to Florida well, we and we got and we got gu- and we got guns in return or something. So I'm like, I mean, this is that is, a, that, is that is a that is an extremely hot take. It was that is a powerfully it's like, hot. Take. It's like ten years ago, at least more than ten years ago, but yeah. This was right after the decision. Oh yeah, yeah. Is, wow, that is topical. Yeah, very topical. But what we don't want to talk about today, um, or what we actually are going to, those are things we're not going to talk about. Yeah. The thing we are actually going to talk about is um, we want to talk about, so Politico, going back to mailings, uh, wrote an article this week that the Democratic National Committee has already um, begun to uh, put together opposition research files. And this is something that any campaign does. They put together opposition files uh, on any potential people so that they can um, uh, be prepared to run against them. And they are apparently, and ordinarily, a sitting president in the first term, generally the um, opposition party will put together a, a, a new file on that person uh, based on their record in office, potentially new things that have come to light afterwards, um, you know, like being in Russia's pocket, for instance, or leaking state secrets to the Russians in the Oval Office, that sort of thing. Um, what you don't often see is the opposition party preparing files on upwards of seven or eight potential candidates that are going to primary the, um, the sitting president. And uh, that's what this political article was essentially saying this week. So uh, what we wanted to talk about was one thing that the article didn't mention was what happens when Donald Trump finally completely breaks from the Republican Party and runs in as independent and takes 20 percent of the vote with him. What do the Democrats do then? And we bring this up just in the context of first, we'll tar- well, we will start talking about uh, Trump and the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And I. This week, uh, Trump, there are a couple of process articles about uh, Donald Trump's, um, the collapse of his relationship with Mitch McConnell. Uh, two nice guys who really deserve each other. I really thought those two crazy kids could work it out somehow. But, you know, I guess a, a, a political romance between uh, a, uh, you know, a, a sort of a faintly angry turtle and a giant orange angry, get, uh, you know, 
ball of gas doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Um, they've really come, they've, they, they have, they've parted brass rags, uh, according to the New York Times, um, that the relationship basically just isn't worth a damn. Uh, this is not a surprise to anyone who's seen how this thing is going, but uh, Trump in particular is becoming more public in his uh, contempt, and contempt is the right word here, in his contempt for Mitch McConnell and in his contempt for Paul Ryan. Um, he's taunting them uh, on Twitter. He's basically giving them the Jeff Flake treatment. Um, for those of you who are familiar, Donald Trump is also openly contemptuous of Jeff Flake. And in fact, actually, the number of elected Republicans of whom he is not openly contemptuous uh, can be counted on one hand without reaching the thumb. But he's really going after McConnell and Ryan. And, and it, Flake. And Flake and a bunch of other people. Who evidently, before his um, nauseous rally in in. Phoenix on Tuesday when he was meeting with some donors, he referred to, he said that Flake, he's such a Flake. Yeah, he's, now, was, he's now referring to him as Flaky Jeff Flake or yeah, Flake Jeff Flake. Which, that's which gold. Is, yeah, that's gold. That's, I mean, he's honestly, like, the man really is a comic genius. He can't yeah. deny it. Uh, you know, Groucho Marx is taking notes from the afterlife. Yeah, so, he's, he's got a career in uh, the Borscht Belt. Borscht Belt. The Borscht Belt, yeah. The Borscht Belt, yeah, exactly. Just as soon as he starts buying up the hotels. Sure, yeah. Uh, take my take my wife, please. I'm done with her. <laughs> oh God. Anyway, so we're yeah, that one too. That one too. Oh boy. Yeah, excellent. We're we're setting a high moral moral tone here. This is what happens when we actually can see each other. Okay. So Trump is going after McConnell. Uh, he's he's taken to his favorite and uh, his favorite uh, communications venue, Twitter, uh, to criticize McConnell and McConnell's strategy. He started to add Paul Ryan into the mix. Uh, he is now threatening to uh, to veto any spending uh, package or the, excuse me any spending package to to raise the debt ceiling, which is um, necessary to keep the government running. Yeah, which is necessary to keep the government running and to maintain the full faith and credit of the United States as a as a lender. And uh, oh boy, me. if it doesn't get raised, um, or excuse me, as a debtor. That's not going to be good. No, it's not going to be good. The consequences for not raising the debt ceiling are quite extreme. And while this is a major problem that, not, I mean, it's, there's actually an argument made it's not as major as it's made out to be, but it is an, a problem that needs to be resolved. The way you resolve it at present is not to just charge into the consequences. Right. Uh, if you are bleeding, the, the wound may need a large amount of care, but the thing to do is not just to bleed to death out of contempt for the wound itself. Uh, that is a poor strategy. I do not recommend it. Uh, and I say this as a person who, as a clumsy person who has injured himself in a large variety of ways. Uh, so, by sneezing, nonetheless. By sne- yeah, by sneezing, and I actually can incurred a small sneeze-related injury, which I would be glad to tell anyone who, who asks me offline about. Uh, <laughs> it is unspectacular, but a good illustration of uh, what happens uh, when you allow yourself to sneeze violently. Anyway. Uh, so this relationship is he's, he's threatening to uh, veto uh, any bill that would raise the debt ceiling that doesn't include funding for the wall. Um, this is this relationship is just is absolutely coming the hell apart. And while Trump has always campaigned to a degree against, uh, actually to a very high degree against the Republican establishment, it is. It, I think this marks a not exactly a change. But a, a significant escalation, significant enough to mark a different peri- to significant enough to mark a new, uh, uh, you know, sort of a new epoch in the Trump administration, uh, that we're in which he is now, you know, eight months into his administration, actively running against the people on the hill that he needs to help get his his uh, his his, leg- his legislative agenda passed. Right. He's essentially reached the conclusion that he has not been able to accomplish anything, uh, and it's their fault. Yes, exactly. So fuck them and all their works. Right. Um, I'm now going to run against them. And the interesting question is, now there will still be areas, this feud could be put to bed tomorrow if they were able to pass anything. A, anything. If they were able to get a, if they were able to get a, you know, a significant tax reform passed, 
uh, and up to his signature, he would sign it and everything would be, would be grand. Like, I'm not saying this can't, this can't be mended. There is, however, a degree to which his, ab- his absolute contempt for the leadership of his party is indicative of the direction of travel here. So the story right now, and I suspect will be for a while, uh, Trump at war with his, own, with his own party. Right. And the question really is, where does it go from here? Um, for starters, uh, by pissing off Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, you're not going to get a lot done on the Hill. Uh, he's already infuriated Democrats who essentially at this point have, you know, lockstep refused to have anything to do with him. Um, so this could lead in a bunch of different directions. It could lead, uh, you know, at the, uh, on the one far end, it could lead to an impeachment. Mm-hmm. That's probably one far end. Uh, the other end is essentially nothing gets done for the next four years. That would be the, that would be the, but, but there's a great deal of stuff in the middle. Yeah. There's a great deal of Sturm und Drang, an enormous amount, like the, the drama to accomplishment ratio is going to be completely out of whack. That would be my, that would be my prediction because it is consistent with the dumbest timeline America thesis. Yeah. Uh, and, and that has so far pretty well held up. Um, so I, I would say that we are projecting three and a half years where not a whole hell of a lot happens. Uh, and, and there is just an enormous amount of trouble about it. Right. The, you could potentially see something happening if the Democrats were to take, uh, which won't happen, the Democrats were to take the Senate, um, even without the House necessarily, and they were to ram through an, an infrastructure bill, Trump would have to sign that. You know, you say that. But, but those are both, those are, you know, two huge ifs, yeah. one of which I have zero faith in happening. The other, you're, I'm more sanguine than you are. Um, but or you're more sanguine than I am about the Dems taking back the House. But I, I'm slightly more optimistic. Sanguine is a strong word. Like it's this. <laughs> this is the, this. This is a. I mean, whew, oh boy, this could go badly south. I mean, yeah. not, not like we're going to lose seats, but but this this is not not at all in the bag. Not remotely in the bag. Right. So going back to where where does the where does this lead? Um, one of the reasons that the DNC is starting to poll um, other Republicans or put together opposition research files on other Republicans is it is entirely plausible that he is primaried, uh, either by somebody like uh, a Ben Sass. Yep. Um, case it could come back around case. It could very easily come back around. There's any, there's probably three or four others. I would say that there's a reasonable, mm-hmm. reasonable potential potential for, um, I would include his own vice president, his own vice president. I would probably include Mitt Romney, even though he'll be in his mid seventies, but God. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't really surprise me. <laughs> Mitt, bring back Mitt. Well, I mean, I want an old school plutocrat, not nouveau riche. Well, I mean, some of some of. I mean, Romney is still remarkably popular amongst the National Review Weekly Standard commentary set. Sure. So that's so that's like forty votes right there. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the point being is that he he is the Ubermensch conservative. To some degree, and yeah, he yeah represents a kind of, the kind of yeah you're right. He a, has the, a, the platonic a, ideal of a yeah. certain strain of a, finance-based a, Republicanism. Right, yeah, a, right. a strong um, uh, national security, um, uh, conservative economic values, and uh, morally a good, very good person. Aside from you know misplacement of a dog. <laughs> and who amongst us hasn't misplaced a dog from time I to mean, time? I mean, in all honesty, if the, the dog may have deserved it. No one's ever brought that concept no, see, up. What did the, do- yeah, <laughs> the dog do? That's, that, this is exactly right. No, I mean, other than, yeah, no, he, he is the ideal candidate 
um, for uh, someone who actually believes that uh, 47% of the country uh, is should essentially is you know are, are grasping people who deserve to be treated like the piss boy, uh, and yep. there's a, and there's a sizable uh, there's a sizable constituency in the Republican Party for that. Right. Um, so uh, uh, if should that happen, um, and even if it should not happen, uh, there is I would say probably a better than 30 percent chance that Donald Trump runs as an independent in 2020. Yeah, it's it is an existent chance, and for this, I want to go before we take on that. Challenge. Well, there's the third dimensional chess aspect that we should probably bring up, which is Donald Trump not running in 2020. Yeah, um, and we we kind of put that up as the possibilities, um, sort of in ranked order, um, lowest to highest possibility. Um, dies from being an out of shape 70 year old who eats fast food. Yeah, I think there's and and and, and again like we, we, we know, don't all, wish this all, we, all, all caveats about yeah, we don't wish this on the president. Yeah, by all, any. yeah, all yeah, that's exactly right. For the yeah, exactly but but for the all caveats of, you know, on medicine aside, like you're looking at a actually I think he's 71 now. You're yeah. looking at a 71 year old man uh, who primarily eats fast food doesn't exercise as a matter of principle um, and gets two scoops of ice cream and everyone else gets one when he has dessert. like there's like, this if he were there are any number of reasons uh, some uh, constitutionally related and some uh, personally constitutionally related uh, for when, you know through which he might not make it to 2020 the other thing is his uh, his the the uh, essentially the ghostwriter the co-writer of art of the deal hypothesized that Trump is looking for a way out. This is someone who spent a lot of time talking to Trump, personally talking to him. And his theory is that Trump hates this and wants a way out. That That is a theory that we have heard a number of times about Trump. From a number of people, but I would say um, it's Tim O'Brien, right? Yeah. 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 I, I would say it, yeah. it might be. We're not sure. Tim O'Brien may be somebody else, though. No, Tim O'Brien... Uh, yeah, that's going out. Tim O'Brien like is the Bloomberg reporter that yeah. got sued. Yeah, um, I don't remember. The, we'll we'll get it in a second because we have devices and all the information in the history of the world on them. Yeah, yeah it's Tony Schwartz. Tony Sorry. Schwartz. Yeah, yeah. And that Tim O'Brien is not to be confused with the uh, things they carried or going after Cacciato. Tim O'Brien. I don't know that anybody was going to confuse them. <laughs> I, that's the Tim O'Brien I think of. So, um, also, I highly recommend. Hang on for a second. This is now. I'm going to make a very strange recommendation. I highly recommend the audiobook of Tim O'Brien's uh, "The Things They Carried," read by Brian Cranston. I listened to it in one sitting, uh, driving through uh, the winter uh, landscape of Tennessee. As I was driving through, I was a very weird man when I got out of the car at the end of that journey. Believe you me, I highly recommend it if you're interested in going to a very strange and dark place. Yeah, and we're all, yeah. we also, because I've had this conversation with two people this week, if you get dental surgery, get the painkillers. Don't say I don't need them. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a good advice podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're, just, we're just here sharing life lessons, man. You came for the politics. You're learning how to live. Yeah. You're learning how to be. Yeah. And what price can you put on that? And don't let somebody say that you're wrong to eat cookie crisp with Reese's Pieces. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that, that's just nonsense. I learned that from Donald Trump. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You know, so sorry. So to return, speaking of our erstwhile president with poor eating habits, yeah. To return to the matter at hand, so uh, not, uh, not erstwhile yet. So Tony Schwartz is saying Tony Schwartz, uh, the uh, the essentially the author of Art of the Deal. Th- this would be our actually this is a, this is the top of our scale. Yeah. This is the most likely. Yeah, this is a very. This is one of the, of the reasons that Trump might not make it to twenty twenty, uh, is that either he will choose not to run again or he'll quit before that because right. 
you know, the way, the battering that he is taking is so hard for his very fragile ego um, that he will find a way out, and he will either. And, and I think there's a couple of there's a couple of ways that people like this tend to let themselves off. Either they declare success in spite of all evidence, and he does, and he he's he's done that. He claimed that James Comey's hearing completely validated him when, in fact, it did essentially precisely the opposite. Well, this has been the ongoing joke. Like, con- the best thing that Congress could do is just pass a resolution saying that America is great again. Sure, that's that's really funny. Yeah, exactly. And they'd be like, well, done. You know, yeah, that, that's precisely it. They should this this is it. This is a great idea. He would sign it, and then he would leave. He'd be like, I have made America great again. S- Speaker Ryan, Leader McConnell, mm-hmm. Leader Schumer, Leader yeah. Pelosi. Let's get let's get this let's done. get this done. Let's get this done. America is great again. Get it get it signed. He will, he honestly would walk at that point. I'm pretty. I'm the greatest president who ever was. We weren't great when I came in, and I made us great within eight months. Yeah, I can, I can 100% see him doing that. Or the other thing that they have a tendency to do is to say, well, you know, someone of, with this particular type of, uh, of toxic narcissism could also say, uh, well, you know, like... I tried I, I, came, I, I came in, no, he would never say I failed. I tried and I did a lot of great things, but the, but the system they didn't appreciate it. me. Yeah, they right. didn't appreciate me. I wasn't appreciated. I was treated very unfairly, which is essentially the kind of the narrative that he's already painted about himself uh, or written about himself writ large. Right. So it, th- those are uh, several reasons he may leave. There's also the fact that he is lazy and doesn't seem to enjoy the job. Yes. That's, which, I mean, who amongst us, right? Right. But, you know. So, I mean, and then Donald Trump can very so easily say, no I, to quit. I've chosen to not run or I've, my high school self or I've chosen to resign because I want to, quote, spend more time with my family. Oh, my God. I hope he does that. Of all the lies he's told, that would be the best. That would truly be the finest if he saved his best life for last. I want to spend my time, more time with my family, my wife, my Maloney and, 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 and little little Borny there. Yeah. <laughs> Come here, Borny. Borny. Uh, little Borny. He'll save us from the hackers. So we put that as the most likely possibility. Uh, or, uh, and somewhere in the middle uh, are impeachment and the 25th Amendment. Yeah. Um, I would say, again, I have said repeatedly over and over and over again, the way that impeachment has to work its way through the House, it's never going to happen. Nope. Um, the 25th Amendment... Um, it needs to be half. It has to be triggered by the vice president. I believe the vice president himself has to trigger yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. And it has to be voted. Half the cabinet mm-hmm. has to agree to it. And if the president refuses to accept it, it gets pushed to Congress and it has by t- two third majorities. I believe. I think that's right. But but bear in mind the Twenty Fifth Amendment was written in 1967 by a time traveler who went back from the writing staff of the television series Twenty Four. Because he's like, we're gonna we're gonna need a device. Yeah, uh, and and we're and and so this has to happen. Or West so. Wing, it happens a lot. It's a very yeah, popular that's exactly, that's exactly entertainment right. yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. sort of yeah, presidentially. Air Force One, weren't they the doing 2000s? the twenty fifth in Air Force One too? Glenn Close was gonna sign the paper on the twenty fifth. I can't remember, but if president you say was so. under duress or something like that. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, twenty fifth amendment, not exactly what you would call a great bet. Although again, uh, don't ever stop using it as a fiction device. Writers, people love it. Right. And all it really takes is uh, a handful of cabinet secretaries to decide that this is what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it starts by certain people, um, let's say uh, John Kelly is now, he's still a member of the cabinet. Chief of staff is a member of the cabinet. I think it is ex officio. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if they were a voting member on the 25th. That's interesting. No. But, you know, let's say you get John Kelly, Nikki Haley, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Mnuchin. You could see a lot of other people falling in line if those four jump up. But again, this is... I, oh, I so want to see Ben Carson at that meeting. I would pay any amount of money to see Ben Carson at that meeting. Yeah. <laughs> or, or Rick Perry. Just, I mean... Yeah. 
Rick Perry would be great at that, but Ben Carson, like, is the president fit to, you know, what is fitness? I remember, uh, you know, the cat's name, I think, was Bootsy, or maybe Boots? I can't remember exactly. It seemed mean, but it was really very gentle. So you never know what's in someone's heart. The trouble is... That's fine, Ben, but which way do you vote? Frank was much more emotive in that... (laughs) <laughs> imitation of Ben Carson than Ben Carson actually is in real life. That's true. It's way too lively. So, now that we've completely lost train on this, mm-hmm. uh, going back to uh, Trump's relationship with the Republican Party, um, the question that then we start out with is, essentially, Trump ran as an independent. He just hijacked the Republican Party. That's a pretty mm-hmm. well-established fact. So, the question then becomes is, does Trumpism in and of itself outlast Trump, should mm-hmm. he decide not to run in 2020? And if he chooses to run in 2020, and these are questions I'll pose to, to you mm-hmm. and you know, see what you think. So question number one is, does Trumpism exist without Trump? And two, um, if he runs as an independent, what percentage of the, of the vote just immediately goes with him? Sure. The, this is a great question. The, only, the reason to believe that Trumpism might not end with Trump... Uh, because I don't think anyone can look at what's happening in the in the country and say this is a phenomenon that's going to come to come to an end with the departure of one person. Uh, you know the kind of white nationalism that motivated so much of this, uh, the discontent with America and its place in the world. Like, like I mean, he harnessed all this stuff, but he didn't invent all of it, and it's, it stands to reason that some of it would remain. But it is possible for political movements to congeal powerfully around. A single around a vote uh, or around a single person, uh, and then having congealed in a way, having congealed, they then disperse. And I'll give you a good example of this. There is some evidence to suggest, some data to suggest that a lot of the key issues that drove uh, that drove Brexit are beginning to uh, slide down the uh, British electorate's uh, list of uh, you know, ranks of you know, the way that they would rank the important issues of their time. So, uh, you were leading up to Brexit. There was a spike in interest in and, and conception of the importance of immigration. Some of that was, I think, driving Brexit. Some of it was a, a loop that was caused by the scheduling of the vote. Uh, but since Brexit interest in immigration as an issue, as a priority issue for for Britain, although it's not gone, uh, has declined precipitously, despite the fact that there's been no meaningful policy change uh, on account of Brexit to deal with immigration. So it looks like, and uh, the political party that was created to to promote uh, the Brexit vote and then was primarily responsible for its success, uh, or at least for its public, the public uh, campaign behind its success, UKIP, that political party has, has simply collapsed post-Brexit. I mean, the, the general election of 2017 saw them just driven effectively out of existence electorally, which suggests that, that single, the single act of Brexit uh, was enough uh, to put the issue to bed, and it did not usher in a new era of isolationist or extremely conservative government. Uh, in fact, actually, the immediate the general election post, uh, post-Brexit, uh, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, uh, actually saw a return, uh, you know, uh, saw an advance for leftist politics in Britain. Obviously, this is a somewhat different case, uh, maybe, but there is, the, there is the possibility that the election of Trump, the very significant thumb in the eye of the kind of established Democratic Party and liberal order, and the Republican order as well, uh, may have been enough to... There's a, there's a real possibility that it was enough to dissipate 
some of the, enough of the frustration that there isn't an organized party left, that some right. of these people return to the fringe. It was a so, cathartic sneeze, yeah, and so it's, it's done. Yeah, the idea is there's this thing, exactly, the catharsis theory. This was a cathartic thing. It is now past, not, the, not that these motivations are gone, but that they are no longer sufficiently organized to be a powerful electoral force. That would be one theory, not one to which I necessarily subscribe, but it's, but it's an existent theory. Right. I think some, one of the differences between sort of the UKIP example and Trumpism living on is Trumpism is represented by its own um, ecosystem of media, mm-hmm. um, particularly, you know, particularly Breitbart, especially with the return of Stevie B., yeah. To Breitbart. And when you have a platform that, again, compared to uh, real news sites, it is, it, you know, it's pennies on the dollar in terms of how many people are actually visiting Breitbart, but the people who are visiting it are very engaged and very active. Mm-hmm. Um, and they firmly believe in, the, in what we have now, what we dubbed the Trump triangle of economic populism, non interventionalism, and white identity politics. Sure. And it's entirely possible that there is, well, this kind of leads into the second part of the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it does succeed, how many, what kind of numbers are we looking at? Sure. So this is the, other, and I would say that the, the, the Brexit does have a parallel here in that much of the British tabloid press was, were, you know, isolationist and Brexit, uh, you know, were standing for that, you know, long before Brexit was a, you know, was a gleam in Farage's eye. Well, I mean, I wouldn't like to hesitate on the various gleams that have struck that horrible man's yeah, eye. You don't want to get into that. You know, let's, not, let's, not, let's not do that. But, um, but the but the uh, so the question is what happens so if something were to happen to Trump like what you know or if, so you know could this could this thing survive I would actually say that what he has awoken if Trump isn't able to carry it uh, and I actually think this is the only way you get a third party candidate is if Trump is not able to carry it you could get a someone who comes in to pick up his torch and carry it forward I actually think Trump probably doesn't run as a third party candidate. If he somehow were to lose the GOP, which would be, I mean, we talk about unprecedented. I mean, the, a sitting president losing the nomination of his own party is almost something out of fan fiction. Right. The um, only times it's even come close, Lyndon Johnson decided to resign. Yeah. Uh, not resign. He decided not to run. Not to run, yeah. Um, Bill Bradley made a lot of noise in 2000, but Al Gore, who wasn't the sitting president, but he was the sitting vice president, uh, you know, gave him a scare, but nothing more happened than that. Mm. Uh, the closest it's really ever gotten to being moderately even frightful, actually interesting. It was probably one of the the... the uh, um, starters of sort of what we now call Trumpism uh, was Pat Buchanan trumping, uh, trumping, mm-hmm. thumping um, George H. W. Bush in the New Hampshire primary. Sure, yeah, and that's and there has been this sort of history in ninety two, ninety two, yeah, 92, yeah. And there and that was you know in, in some respects a a, a testament to um, the weakness of you know of H. W. as a candidate overall in that in that election. Uh, so, you know, I think you know again uh, you know looking at Trump himself. It's difficult to imagine a scenario in which if, again, by some bizarre act, it looked like he was going to lose the Republican primary uh, of him sticking around to run an election that he was not likely to win. Right. Um, unless he felt like now the, the, the alternative here is unless he felt like he could take the Republican down with him, because keep in mind, there's a great piece in Baffler this week uh, written by David Roth. Uh, not again, not the musician or the magician uh, who, who I've mentioned before. Who's the magician? There's a magician named David Roth. I thought it was David Blaine. Mm, there is a music, there's a magician named David Blaine right. as well. So um, there's many David there's Roths. There's many, yeah. There's many David Roth. This one used to... David, write, David Roth the blacksmith? <laughs> David Roth the blacksmith. David, David Roth the sprinter? <laughs> <laughs> David Roth the sailor? No. So David Roth the writer. 
uh, wrote a very good piece uh, that was that, and, and this is a useful device. I pass it on all of you. I, you should all go and read it. But the device is essentially this: Trump is an asshole, and that, that's his thesis. And that every decision the man makes needs to be taken in that context and in that context alone. So if he were to potentially lose a, or it looked like he was going to lose a GOP uh, nomination, as a fragile narcissist, it would be very hard for him to run in an election that he didn't have a shot at winning. On the other hand, first of all, he has done that once before uh, and it and triumphed. He's narcissistic and grandiose enough to believe he can win almost anything probably now. But also, if he felt like he could at least take down the person who beat him, that is a very asshole move and it's the kind of thing he might do. Yeah. Nonetheless, that, I think if you were to get a, a significant Trumpist third-party candidate, it's much more likely to be because, for whatever reason, Trump isn't part of the 2020 election. And he dubs someone his and successor. So, yeah. Or, I, well, the thing is, Trump can never imagine someone filling his own shoes. So it would be someone who was able to, it would be like, I mean, it would be a straight knife fight, uh, you know, like, like, the, like the shittest version of Alexander saying, I leave it to the strongest. Uh, it would be, you know, I leave it to the dumbest and craziest. Uh, so right. it'd be like Corey Stewart or some monstrous asshole like that. Well, I mean, would I, would, pick I wouldn't, up the, would I wouldn't pick even up, necessarily go that crazy. Mm-hmm. I would even put somebody like Mike Pompeo or Tom Cotton. Sure. I mean, in there. But, but again, right. But again, this yeah. is all dumbest timeline America. This is dumbest timeline America, right? Like, I mean. And once you're dumb, you only go dumber. Yeah. This is like Scott Baio or, uh, <laughs> you know, or, you know, or like Hulk Hogan or someone comes out like, you know, Rob, like Rex Ryan, you know, decides that, you know, his, his, you know, his defense is, you know, no longer able to, uh, uh, to you know, to fool NFL quarterbacks and NFL coaches, he's now going to take his defensive acumen to being president of the United States. Sure, fine, fuck it, let's do that. Yeah, uh, someone like that is able. It's in fact actually, let's say the Ryan brothers run on a, run on a joint ticket. Um, they pick it up and, and are able to kind of wrest control of that narrative and are able to be the people who speak to this. But it's more likely that narrative. Interesting will fun fact: the Ryan brothers ticket would still weigh less than the, than the Taft ticket. <laughs> Holy smokes! Yes, how true that is. I'm telling you, man, it's 400 pounds of twisted steel and romp and stomp and dynamite. Uh, much like the history books, uh, I had this conversation the other day, and again, not to go too, too far off topic, mm-hmm. but I was having this conversation with somebody uh, just yesterday. Um, I was remi- remembering that when I took AP history, mm-hmm. um, which is, it's a national curriculum to take you know, AP history. Your individual school could teach it a little differently. I was at a private school, so they could have taught anything they wanted. But for AP, you have to get taught for the test. And they were adamant about making sure that we understood that the Civil War was not about slavery. Oh, that it was about oh, no. I, it, that it was about um, oh. economics and states' rights. Oh. Of course, e- even as the young wee babe of a seventeen-year-old <laughs> idiot that I was then, I rapidly put together that. But wait, it was really about slavery because not having slaves would destroy their economy, and the federal government wanted to take away their state rights. To have slaves. <laughs> sure. so, so in that sense. But my point being is that uh, as this larger discussion goes on about the memorials and the statues and other sorts of things, uh, there is a 150-year history of this country uh, misteaching history mm-hmm. on purpose. Uh, so I bring this all up uh, first so that we can get our little bit in about um, the Civil War and slaves and monuments, uh, but mostly to remind you that Taft did get stuck in a bathtub. Don't let them tell you otherwise. <laughs> That's exactly right. The truth, the, the truth will out. You can't deny real history. Taft got stuck in a bathtub. And, and as far as I'm concerned, one or both of the Ryan brothers probably has at one point. God bless him. I miss them both. Yeah. I feel like bathtub technology has, in, has improved 
bathtub technology has improved. Yeah. How? They're larger. Everything's bigger that's, in America that's, now. That's true. That's exactly <laughs> right. We're going to need some bigger bathtubs. Taft was just the beginning. Yeah, you know, it, it's remarkable. You know, it's supersize America. Uh, we, you know, in, 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 in my glorious world travels with my lovely wife, we were in uh, Prague two summers ago, and we were walking through the old town up by the castle, and all the doors were like four feet tall. I'm like, was this a def-? And I asked the tour guide, was this a defensive measure to ensure that invaders couldn't easily get into the home? And the person with a very straight face, it may have just been, they were Czech, but with a very straight face said, no, the people were just smaller. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard that I have, I have, that's often an explanation that's given and there's probably some truth to it. I have also heard that that is an exaggeration. That in fact, all the people were smaller. They weren't, they weren't like four feet tall. Right. Like, you know, this was partly just a question of their ability to construct these you know, their materials and the ability right. to construct tall doorways. This, this uh, goes back to them teaching you history and nutrition wrong. This is their excuse to get you to eat greens and other sorts of things. That's a, that's you exactly can eat right. anything the fuck you want. You will grow to the proper <laughs> that's, that's height. That's exactly right. That's, this is precisely it. Don't let Michelle Obama tell you otherwise. <laughs> Neglect your vegetables. Eat nothing but chicken, but like fried chicken skins, and you too can become president of the United States. Go to Iceland. Look how large those people and how in shape they are. They yeah, eat nothing but putrid do, fish and... Root vegetables and these incredibly good hot dogs. Holy <laughs> smokes. <laughs> no, they're like mutton and and uh, and beef as well and a little bit of pork. Oh, they're so good. Eat Icelandic hot dogs. Okay, now Trump planning is an independent. Well, welcome, <laughs> well, hello, good afternoon. Welcome back to Taking Ship of Politics about, uh, about, about why you shouldn't eat your vegetables. Blue Apron will provide you with <laughs> nutritious meals. <laughs> exactly right. What <laughs> <laughs> I'm now. Oh, boy. So Dollar Shave Club is really not getting their money on this podcast. Okay. Trump running as an independent. We'll work them we, in. We'll, we'll work them in. We'll work them in. We'll find it in there somewhere. Uh, yeah. it's if What he has awoken will not go away. I can see it being carried in 2020 by a successor. I think that most of the people who voted for Trump in the general election did so because they were Republicans and he was the Republican candidate. And it's, or they hated Hillary Clinton. Sure. But the, for the most part, like the overwhelming majority of people did it for reasons that could basically boil down to these are Republicans voting Republican. Right. Like past is predictor of, you know, is fu- is past predictor of future. There is, however, the narrowness of that victory uh, suggests that were a candidate to come along uh, and who could siphon off even a small percentage of those votes. You might even say shave off a you certain percentage. Shave off a certain percentage <laughs> of that. As one might shave at a very reasonable price, a value candidate could appear to An economically conservative candidate. <laughs> appealing to the thrift, appealing to the, to, the, to the American values of thrift and foresight. And ingenuity. And ingenuity. <laughs> Dollar Shave Club. <laughs> Call us. We're ready. We're professionals. You get your money. You get your money's worth here, <laughs> even if you haven't paid for it. Yes, it's possible that um, you know some that a third party candidate who had the potential who could somehow wrest the Trump mantle from uh, you know everyone else who would want to hang on to, who everyone else would want to hang on to it. Um, you know, someone like, for example, the Secretary of the Treasury's wife. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, somebody, we're talking about a real high caliber candidate like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, someone like that could potentially uh, upend to- the 2020 election for the Republican Party. Again, all of this assumes that Trump doesn't make it, for which there are there are reasons to believe that he might not. But right. the overall 
overwhelming likelihood is that he does, in fact, make it that far and that he does run again. It also really suggests that the Republican Party is in much, much worse shape than I think people are actively talking about. It's not good. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And the, the interesting thing I mean, he is— He lost by 3 million votes. He, he, yeah. He's president by essentially about 20,000 votes spread across half a dozen— Voting districts. Yeah, it's a little more than that, but yeah, that's basically it. I mean, it's you know, it is less than uh, eighty-five or ninety thousand people votes across three major states. Is I think the difference right. there. So maybe seventy thousand votes. Very, very few. Um, and it's it's not good for them. The interesting thing, and and this is one of the reasons why I am not sanguine, although I'm slightly more optimistic than you are about the 2018 House election, is that while those while the Republican Party is suffering in the polls, Trump is suffering very much. Like he's he is not in a good way. Uh, from a polling perspective, although presidents can bounce back, but he is—he's really not a good. Uh, the latest poll I saw, he says he's at thirty-four percent. Yeah, which is, I mean, unprecedented for a president at this stage. Yeah, the lowest uh, in in recent history, and I think this goes back—the recent history goes back to Carter, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lowest was President uh, Bill Clinton was at forty-four percent at this time, um, and to remind people at the time, that was in large part due to the failure of health care. Yeah, that was the, yeah. That's exactly right, and and a pretty dysfunctional White House. Yeah, and 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 also it's worth pointing out, and also a Democratic Party still trying to understand how the Rube, you know, uh, uh, centrist governor from Arkansas, won. Um, while while the vast majority of, Dem- of Democrats in Congress were still pretty ultra liberal, sure, and well, and and also a Democratic par- a Democratic president who had been elected in no small part thanks to a right of center independent challenger. So it wasn't right. like you you know one right. was giant mandate. Anyway, so this is unprecedented. For this Trump is suffering very heavily in the polls. He's suffering I mean, individually. That, that suffer- was the twenty percent we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Rogue has twenty percent. Yeah, exactly. He's suffering. Trump is suffering in, in the polls quite powerfully. He's suffering suffering on his individual numbers. He's also suffering by issue. Uh, Democrats are getting ground on him uh, pretty much issue by issue as a, as, as a result, I suspect, almost entirely of his general decline in popularity. Republicans, uh, the Republican brand, if you want to call it that, is also suffering. It is suffering more than the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party's brand is suffering too. Uh, there is a general, the numbers suggest that people are not turning to the Democratic Party as an alternative, but are simply uh, disgusted with the state of politics, which, if you think about it, makes a degree of sense because nothing has really happened in politics since uh, Trump's election that would suggest that anyone has a commanding uh, plan to uh, turn the, to you know get the country back on the right track, if you want to use that polling language, has a commanding plan to do that and the capacity to execute it. Yeah. I, I mean, if you think about what may happen in 2018, um, it is entirely possible that there this will be the lowest turnout election in decades. It, that, that is 100% on the table. While um, at the same time, it's also entirely plausible that it is the highest turnout midterm election in decades. Yeah. There were, this, is, this is where you get an analysis that says both yes and no. Right. Uh, no, it's true. It is very possible that, that Democrats especially will be angry enough at Trump that will come out to vote in herds and droves. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen that happen in 2006. It is a thing that can occur without question. Um, but it is... And there is definitely energy in the Democratic base. Uh, but the other thing is it's possible that Democrats could win a low turnout election. That's all, that almost never happens. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a black swan event. Generally speaking, in order for Democrats to win, you have to have high turnout. Uh, but it's you know, within the realm of possibility that a powerfully motivated Democratic base, a largely, disen- you know, a largely disgusted or disengaged Republican base, um, yeah, I mean, the, you could have a low turnout election in which Democrats win. That's, it, it would be hard in such circumstances to retake the full house, I think uh, you need a larger turnout election for that, and and so far it's not clear that the the gen, the uh, enthusiasm outside the Democratic base is there. 
Right. And but there's a long. I mean, there's a long time to. I'm not making a prediction. Here, there's a long time ahead. I mean, to bring this all back around to uh, 2020, which is where we started. Um, there was an article I read recently that a bunch of Democratic wise people uh, got together in D.C. Um, and they were um, the person uh, that was quoted by name was Anita Dunn. Uh, who's a longtime Democratic communication strategist. She's at SKD Knickerbocker. She was uh, President Obama's director of communications at some point. She's been a major player in just about every Democratic election for the last 15 or 20 years. Um, she said that a group of them got together for dinner, and they came up together uh, as a group. They came up with a list of 28 Democrats who are uh, either speaking of or being spoken of running in 2020. Yeah. Um, that is an astounding number. Um, so, and the, for a party that still doesn't have a message, mm-hmm. a party that uh, in all likelihood will have a not great midterm, um, that's not good. <clears throat> it's it's not good, but it's also, it's also not bad. It's all, I mean, it's fine. Like, it's, it's what it is. You know, it's yeah. It's, you're, 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 I mean, twenty eight, sure, fine. Like that's that's okay. Um, if you if you take the number of people who are in it seriously in it and thinking about it, that number shrinks pretty dramatically early. And <clears throat> but I think it is a an interesting testament to a sense of I think what we are seeing is the challenge of structural this, the the structural challenge that both parties face. Represented in the wide number of candidates who are running for president. I mean, seventeen Republicans ran in twenty sixteen. It's I mean, that's an astonishing figure. And the Republican, the Democrats have always been a little bit better, if you want to call it that. Uh, have always been a little bit better about choosing candidates who don't fit a particular mold. Uh, Republicans, up until twenty twelve, always there was cho- always a consensus. They going always, in, they always chose someone whose name had appeared in connection with presidential politics before. In fact, the only time they didn't choose, in fact, the only time they they nominated a candidate who was not uh, either a vice president or a previous presidential candidate was George W. Bush. So, mm-hmm. a name familiar from presidential politics, <clears throat> uh, but but not a previous candidate himself. That was the only time they'd ever gone with someone who was who uh, was not either a silver medalist from before or had mm-hmm. been vice president. Mm-hmm. And they and and they always picked a veteran. And then in 20, they had picked a veteran every year since 1952. And they had gone with the uh, silver medalist. Uh, they'd gone with the, with the, with the silver medalist uh, or established figure of previous vice presidential. But basically throughout the modern era, with the, with the arguable exception of Dwight Eisenhower, the most famous American of his day and the man who won World War II in the American conception of the time. Right. 2012. They picked the silver medalist over a veteran. Mitt Romney was the first Republican candidate in, in generations who was not a veteran. 2016, they throw both of them under the wind. And I think that there is something, I think it is an indication of the of the of how unsettled the Republican Party's relationship with its own kind of with its own base. Yeah. And the dis the and its own bases, I should say, has become. It, this isn't quite as true of the Democratic Party. We tend to be a little bit more malleable in terms of who we pick as our candidates. Uh, but nonetheless, like if you've got even 14 or 15 people who would be considered credible leaders, it tells you that there is no sense of where the base is anymore. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, one name that's popped up as of late is uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, who I would say is, uh, you know, he's Rust Belt. Uh, I would say he's probably pretty right of the party. Um, and you compare that to someone, you know, Bernie Sanders, who I don't believe will run, or Elizabeth Warren, who I don't believe will run, but they will have a representative, whether that's Cory Booker or 
it seems unlikely to be Booker given his relationship with finance, but like, but there's any number of people who would right. run as the avatar of that of that side of the party without question. Right. Um, I don't know how close it gets us to having Al Franken on either the top or the bottom of the ticket, but that's the dream, folks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can at least we can we can at least have uh, you know have someone who's you know you know a bit witty and can think on his feet. That'd be something. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been yakking about this topic that we did want to talk about um, for about hmm, 45 minutes now. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that we wanted to talk on, talk about before we uh, jump aboard a ship and on, hoist the Jolly Roger and head out somewhere is... <laughs> Which is how we begin all cruises, by the way. <laughs> like, we, yeah. you know, it's never, you know, it's never, you know, this is our, you know, this is our path. This is our navigation. But it's always like, you know, let's spit on our hands, hoist the black flag and, uh, you know, and get after it. And, you know, devil take the hindmost. Yeah. Second star to the right, straight on till morning. That's not really our style. No. It's too is, much planning. Is that a star or is that just a flashing strobe? Let's go there. Let's go there. <laughs> sure. Exactly. Uh, we want to talk about, uh, because we spent a good deal of time with this last week, and he promised us that he would repeat, he would go back to the topic again, and he did, because David Leinhardt is still not back. Mm-hmm. Wherever you are, sir, <laughs> please come back. Come back to work, David. Uh, our good buddy Dave Bro. Mm-hmm. Which is now what we've dubbed David Brooks. Yes, um, but again, in our eternal quest to give people dumb sports nicknames. Yeah, so Dave Bro uh, wrote another humdinger this week. He did, he did. Titled, <laughs> What Moderates Believe. And if you recall, last week he, disca- he described how humility and moderation are the way to fix the world, essentially. Yeah. And, and again, we promise you this is not going to become a David Brooks ethering podcast, although there's probably a constituency for that. If David Leinhardt <laughs> is dead, it will. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's true. David, David Leinhardt, please come back. So, but, but nonetheless, he indulges in a metaphor here that we just we can't let stand. So, uh, you know, on, you know he, he begins uh, with, you know, what is moderation? Uh, why is moderation good? Uh, you know, he doesn't like the term moderation. Uh, David Brooks does not, but he's willing to use it for a while. <clears throat> so here we go, and you'll see why we get angry very quickly. This is now the uh, this is what is this? This is the fourth, fifth paragraph. It begins. Moderates do not see politics as warfare. Instead, national politics is a voyage with a fractious fleet. Here is where we realized. Yeah. Dave Bro must be listening to Taking Ship. Wisdom is finding the right formation of ships for each specific circumstance, so the whole assembly can ride the waves forward for another day. Sir, leave the goddamn naval metaphors to us. Now, but I will say, if mm-hmm. this is him trolling us, well done, sir. Oh, I am, I am extremely trolled. Tip, tip of the angler cap I to am you. Extreme, I am extremely, to the extent that this podcast is going online, which it must, uh, I, am, I am officially mad online. Yeah. Like this, uh, this, I am actually quite furious. Okay. So uh, we're, and again, uh, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this thing. And I don't mean that in a Donald Trump now. I'm going to spend 20 minutes talking about this. I mean, actually, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this thing. Antifa. Antifa. There's the Antifa. <laughs> is he just uh, rattling off a list of... Antifa! Oh, God, that was so good. The KKK, did I get them? Did I get them? Antifa! Okay, the truth is plural, so basically David Brooks comes out uh, with the courageous position that uh, that uh, the world is nuanced and complex. Terrific. This is his lengthy definition of what a moderate believes. Yeah, yeah, politics is a limited activi- activity, um, sure, but at the same time, that's a convenient-ass thing to say. Uh, if, Do we want to spend a little time talking about the truth, the truth is plural? Only in his only because he kind of misdefines it, I believe. Okay, go ahead. Um, 
you know, Bill Clinton has a, has a, I don't believe it's his, but it's something that he says frequently, that no one has a monopoly on the truth. Sure. And that is a true statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is not really what Brooks is saying here. Brooks is saying there is no one incorrect answer to the big political questions. That is incorrect. Yeah, that is. Sometimes there is. It is often true that politics is a is a choice between uh, com- between competing viewpoints, both of which have some degree of validity. But to, but but again, this is. I'm glad you brought us back to this because this is the essence of alt centrism. The es- one of the key points of alt centrist dogma is. Is exactly this. There is no one incorrect answer to big political questions. Sometimes there is. Right. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is so transparently obvious what needs to happen, uh, and there are elements that are arrayed against against the the obvious truth, and those those have to be met uh, in a contest of ideas and politics, and they have to be defeated. Right. Like that right. happens from time to time. It's you know it's it basically creating dichotomies that you then you 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 weed down to an end result. So yeah. for instance, what does he actually think politics is? For an in, for instance, and this is a uh, Frank and I were discussing this earlier. Earlier, um, there is evil in this world, and it needs to be defeated. How you go about doing that then becomes another question. So, for instance, there may be people who say that there is no evil in this world. They are wrong. That do, that is not true. So the truth of that, where this isn't truth is plural, there is truth. There is evil in the world. Then you can start discussing what you do about it. Sure. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier is uh, drone strikes versus an alternative. Mm-hmm. Sure. So drone strikes versus nothing doesn't make a lot of sense because there's evil in the world and you have to defend yourselves. That's what your sovereign right as a nation is. And your goal as a human being, essentially. Sure. The challenge for the, the drone strike question is you could see, and this is where there is, I, I mean, this is where you've got an example of a kind of plural truth. Uh, there is an argument to be, there are two sort of two viewpoints on this, um, that the drone strikes are necessary because you are taking an evil in the time. You're taking someone who is planning on doing something terrible. Uh, you know that is going to happen, and you execute a strike against that person to prevent them from doing to, from doing an, an evil thing in the in the near future, knowing that the broad mat that the that drone strikes have the potential to to undermine uh, America's moral legitimacy in the world uh, through collateral damage, and they can be used as a terrorist recruitment tool uh, because of collateral damage. This has been the experience of the British. Both of which Ireland. things are true. Both of which things are true. Um, so you're looking at that as an example of there being a, of you know of a plural truth, but that is, and but needing to make a decision between them. And this is a little bit later in this piece. He talks about how you're able to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time as a moderate, which is true. Moderates can hold two thoughts in their head at the same time. But if you are governing, you're going to have to choose between one of those two things. You're yep. going to have to choose which which, which one you, which one you are going to go for. And often it's the lesser of two evils. Sure, you're doing yeah. And how you conceive the lesser of two evils is really is really powerfully important. So we are not saying that there is no such thing as the idea that there is a there is a a plurality of truth, but the idea that there is, but alt centrism sort of cleaves to this idea that there is never a correct answer. There's no one correct answer to the big political questions. Sometimes there is. Sometimes people need healthcare and they need education. Yeah, and his argument: politics is a dynamic unfolding, not a debate that can ever be settled once and for all. Those are David Brooks's words. Uh, depending on the issue, uh, I think it sometimes has the idea that, for example, uh, slavery some, is slavery. Bad. Yeah, I've never thought that this would be the case, but uh, yeah, the idea that uh, you know that there are some ideas like white supremacy and white nationalism that you know deserve that should be on the ash heap of history and and you know and taught as a disgraceful period of history and not a present theory. Uh, sure, that seems like a case where a uh, debate that can and should be settled once and for all. Okay, uh, so politics is a limited activity. 
uh, you know, he talks about the virtue for moderates, the politics that they don't get, you know, they don't see politics and government as the be all and end all. Uh, that's fine uh, if you are not working three jobs to make ends meet and don't have health care. Uh, politics becomes very important. Uh, if uh, if uh, if you, politics becomes very important if you are in fact living like that. Okay, we're going to carry on here. Uh, there's this wonderful uh, paragraph about creativity being syncretistic. Creativity is syncretistic. Uh, sure. Uh, honestly, like uh, he just uh, the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. A lot of a lot of great a lot of great examples of creativity are are multidisciplinary. Fine. Uh, I'm not sure why that necessarily militates for moderation. Uh, okay. Now here we go. Uh, in politics, the lows are lower than the highs are high. This is a good one. This is these are his words. In politics, the lows are lower than the highs are high. The harm government government does when it screws up wars or depressions is larger than the benefits government produces when it does well. This is factually incorrect, and I will, and I have one word for you on this one: sanitation. Sanitation is effective is responsible for the more the saving of more lives than just about anything in the modern world, and it is rigor it is and its infrastructure is built and enforced almost exclusively by government, and the good that that has done. And gener- when it's not, you end up with Flint, Michigan. Yeah, when it's done, you end up with Flint. At best, man, at best, and you know, and uh, and when it is when it is done, and it has done more good generation on generation than any amount of mismanagement uh, of depression or wars as a result of mismanagement has done harm. This is just this fails on the face. It is an absurd argument. When it's mismanaged, you end up with things like in New York that bubbles up every couple of years where there are some of the best hospitals in the world staffed by some of the best doctors in the world um, with some of the wealthiest people in the world living here. Legionnaire's disease pops up from sure. time to time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, I mean, this this is truly something. It's like the plague popping up in Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I mean, I mean, I mean there's, yeah, that, that, that we can dismiss that argument out of hand. I, I can't believe it actually made it through an editorial process. Uh, let me see here. Uh, there's some thing about how like you have to find truth before you care about justice. Uh, that's re- that strikes me as ridiculous. Here we go. I want to give you this in full. Uh, beware the danger of a single identity. Before they brutalize politics, warriors brutalize themselves. Instead of living out several identities, Latina slash lesbian slash gun owning slash Christian. That person sounds kind of awesome, actually. Uh, that pull in different directions. They turn themselves into monads. They prioritize one identity, one narrative, and one comforting distortion. What has the this fuck? has this guy ever met a person? Moving on. Uh, partisanship is necessary. Well, we know he knows one person. You know he knows one person. He tried to take her for a sandwich, and she Didn't told him to out. piss off. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it was because she was a Latino lesbian gun-owning Christian. Christian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was like, you want to have this weird sandwich? She's like, I feel like by please get I, away from me. I feel by the end of this series, he will have completely outed the person he took out for the it's sandwich. Ju- it's just, it's, it's, there is no question These at all. are the things that we know now. He's leaving us breadcrumbs. Yeah. Uh, so mar- moderates are the problematic members of partisan politics. What the, So he's casting himself as the rebel now. Now, this is pretty awesome. Uh, oh, yeah, there's a moment in the truth before justice thing where he comes out where he says, if you, you know, all political movements must face inconvenient facts, uh, thoughts, and data that seem to aid their foes. If you try to suppress those facts by banning a speaker or firing an employee, then you are putting the goals of your cause, no matter how noble, above the search for truth. This is the path to fanaticism. It always backfires in the end. So he comes out against Google, which he actually did explicitly in a previous uh, column, and uh, and predicts their, their pathway to fanaticism. Well, we're all looking forward to Google's descent into extremism, I'm sure. 
Uh, and then finally he concludes, uh, <clears throat> because he always must, humility is the fundamental virtue. Humility is radical self-awareness, blah, blah, blah. I remind you, as I did last week, that this was a man who once taught a course on humility at Yale uh, that featured a large amount of his own writing uh, on the prospectus. On the syllabus. Yeah, uh, I mean, <clears throat> moderates don't operate from the safety of their ideologically pure galleons. So, again, aside from the fact that he's... Leave the ma- naval metaphors to us. ...masterfully trolling us. Mm-hmm. Maybe we send Dave Bro the listener number eight t-shirt. Yes, Dave Bro's our obvious listener number eight. Yeah. Yeah. They are unafraid to face the cross currents detached from clan, acknowledging how little they know. Okay, yeah, that's all true, but what's the, that means nothing. Yeah, what the hell is this? That's, that's the penultimate paragraph. Here's the kicker. <clears throat> if you have elected a man who is not awed by the complexity of the world, but who filters the world to suit his own narcissism, then woe to you, because such a man is the opposite of the moderate Voyager type. He will reap a whirlwind. I don't know what that has to do with anything. Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess he's attempted to pay this thing off with some kind of Old Testament thing, but it's, oh, what a disaster. Good people, we enjoin you not to fall prey to the seduction of alt-centrism. It leads you to shit like this. Yeah, and if you're going to take a boat, take ship. Don't take Dave Bro's pleasure cruise <laughs> don't through. Do the desert. Dave Bro's predict to the uh, to, to Moderation Island, where everyone sits and politely discusses chain CPI as the solution to fucking everything. Yeah, and I can guarantee you one thing: if there's any kind of alcohol on Dave Bro's magical Maryland, you're not going to want to drink it. No, it's going to be like sherry or some shit. I wouldn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, listen. Like I know they've got Pinot Grigio, but I, you can you can get tired of that shit awful fast. Yeah, that's a bad headache. That's a bad headache. Don't do it. All right. Well, Frank, it's been a pleasure sitting in the same room and recording. Um, thank you all for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in percussion. Please check out our new Facebook page. Like us there. Um, leave a review. If you've got time to tweet, you have time to leave a review. And with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? Oh, this is a good one. We take ship this week for Ireland. I know this is not the way it usually goes, uh, but you know, I, I you know, I promise you this one makes sense. Uh, there is uh, there was a good piece recently. Apparently, uh, in uh, a, a portion of, uh, of Ireland, uh, there is a road that has a, a series of very bad uh, potholes, a series of, you know, quite a bit of damage that's been repeated, and then the damage re- recurs way too quickly for a, way too quickly uh, for most explanations to make sense. Rather than it being shoddy crafts work. Rather than it being shoddy crafts how, how dare you, sir? Uh, the, not, uh, not the Irish. Not the, God, God damn it. I'm, I'm furious. Uh, the local uh, member of the Doyle, TD, uh, the Irish uh, Parliament, uh, Danny Healy Ray, has come up with a very interesting explanation for what's happening here. And, oh, Danny boy. Has oh, a Danny good one. Healy Ray, this is a good one, uh, which is that uh, the areas that where the damage reappeared could be blamed on the fairy mounds or fairy forts. Uh, per uh, Irish folklore, uh, these fairy mounds or fairy forts. Uh, are places where uh, the fairies live, uh, that if you mess with them, uh, there's a curse. Uh, the fairies will reassert their control over the territory. So presumably somewhere out there, there is some poor road paver who is just cursed with horrifyingly bad luck. Uh, so I think there is probably something to this. I think the Danny Healy Ray is almost certainly correct. 
Uh, I think that it is, un it is without doubt that this infrastructure project is being undermined by the fairies, and I would like to enlist their support in, all, in any number of projects. And so uh, my friends in, in contravention of my own family history uh, and, uh, and general practice, friends, we take ship this week for Ireland. Take care, everybody. 